Amen. We're continuing our series today called Church on Mission. Last week we talked about the Great Commission and we talked about the mission of God and how God is always on the move and he's calling us to be on the move with him. And today we have a, a guest speaker, uh, Eddie Copeland from Church United. Church United is an organization that's really trying to draw gospel preaching, gospel-centered churches together in South Florida for the purpose of reaching the community, reaching the lost in our city, and showing the love of Jesus together. Uh, it's been something that I've been part of for a couple years now. I'm currently actually in a cohort with other pastors that's led by Church United. Um, Eddie's a good friend of mine. Together we have schemed and played uh, April Fool's jokes on others' pastors. So uh, he's, he's right up my alley, he's that kind of guy. And uh, I'm gonna play a quick video just so you get an idea of what Church United is. This is a story about a question. What if we could change the narrative of South Florida? What if our community became known as the best place to live, to work, and to raise a family? Like our own stories, the story of South Florida is far from over. From the very beginning, the vision of Church United was beyond any one church, key leader, or organization. It was about the flourishing of South Florida, a belief that as the gospel saturates the region, generosity is reimagined, stronger families are formed, Sunday's faith is connected to Monday's work, art is more hopeful, literacy rises, the poor are empowered, orphans and widows are cared for, and commerce is redefined for the common good. So with that in mind, we ask ourselves, what if we began to connect, collaborate, and celebrate together? What if we began to unify around the spiritual lostness, the social pain, and the cultural brokenness of our surroundings? What if we trusted God for a vision so big that we would have to say it was only God who accomplished it? In late 2015, key leaders of gospel-believing churches began to come together, unifying for the sake of mission. We began to meet quarterly to build relationships, link arms, and discover the possibilities of collaboration. We focused on soul care, believing that healthy leaders lead healthy churches. And we've been mobilized to demonstrate God's love throughout our communities. But what if we're only just getting started? Today, we're writing the next chapter of the story of Church United. We call it Vision 2020 a vision to increase the number of committed Christ followers in our region from 3% to 6% through collective evangelistic efforts, planting churches, raising up leaders, mobilizing commerce, engaging education, and you. You are a critical piece of the story. No matter who you are or what you do, you play a central role in seeing this vision realized. You see, we don't just need more pastors and more churches. We need hundreds of new leaders who understand their calling and the power of their influence. We need thousands of gospel-saturated Christians, people who see their vocation as mission, deployed into every sector of the marketplace. And as a critical mass of South Floridians begins to rise, they become better neighbors, better employees, better parents, and better citizens. And that just might represent something big for our region. It may just spark a revival. Imagine when 3% of committed Christ followers become 6%, then 9%, and eventually a tipping point. And as the momentum continues, South Florida becomes the best place to live, a place of faith, hope, and love. 
a place where God's kingdom is on the move. Vision 2020 is only one of many chapters in our story, a story that is far from over. Join us. Awesome to think we're part of a story at this church, but our church is part of a bigger story of what God's doing in our region. Exciting, right? Uh, I'm going to ask Eddie Copeland to come up. Let's welcome him. <clears throat> Eddie is the executive director of Church United. He's worked with church planning organizations here in South Florida. And I'm going to pray for you, Eddie, and then, and then give you the mic. Lord Jesus, thank you for Eddie. Thank you for Church United. Thank you uh, for unity in the body. Thank you for bringing together people who are different, but yet the same in you. And so we pray this morning that you would change us by your word. We pray that you would give Eddie power in the spirit and us transformation through the spirit. And that we might be emboldened to live for you and to live in your love and express your love and share it in our city. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thanks, Thanks John. Well, good morning. It's a blessing to share some time with you all this morning, and uh, I don't know if you caught it from that video, but God is up to something really fun, really cool, and unique here in South Florida. You see, uh, churches and leaders from across denominations and traditions are uniting for mission like never before. But not only are pastors coming together, people in our pews are coming together in new and unprecedented ways with this sense of mission to spread faith hope, and love throughout South Florida. And I got to tell you, I am so thankful for your pastor and for the pastors of this region, for the way that they're leaning into this unity. Not unity for unity's sake to come together to sing some worship songs and to say, hey, yeah, we're all in this together, but really coming together for the sake of God's kingdom. So New City Fellowship, I want you to be really, really encouraged this morning because God is on the move. So this morning we're going to look at John 17, uh, a section of scripture known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And it's a section of scripture that's broken out into three parts, and I'm just going to quickly go over that. In verses 1 through 5, we find Christ's prayer for himself, and then in verses 6 through 19, we find Christ's prayer for his immediate disciples, and then in verses 20 through 26, we find a prayer for all of those who would follow Jesus on mission throughout the coming centuries. That's where we find ourselves here this morning. Theologian James Montgomery Boyce famously said this of this section of scripture. He said, this should be to us something of what the burning bush was to Moses. For here we hear God speaking and we should put off our shoes and bow humbly, being that we're about to tread on the most hallowed of ground. And this morning, we're going to look specifically at verses 20 through 23 of John 17, and we're going to look at three main points. First, we're going to look at what unity is, then we're going to look at why it's important, and then we're going to park a lot of time at the third point, how does it come to us? How do we experience unity in the body? How do we get it? So with that, let me read our sermon text and then ask God to join us as we open up his word this morning. If you have a Kindle or an iPhone or a Bible or... I think it's on the screen. There we go. Just read along with me as I read from John 17, 20 through 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who would believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. 
May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we ask that you would do what we just sang. That not just here in this church this morning, but in the churches throughout South Florida, would the walls come down and would the spirit break out. Lord, would we see revival here in South Florida. We want to believe, God, that your spirit will do it and can do it. We want to say that South Florida can truly be the best place to live, to work, and to raise a family because your people and your kingdom is on the move. So, Father, I pray that you would use just this short time to illuminate our hearts and our minds and reorient us towards what you have, what you have for us in the gospel and in unity with one another, we pray. Amen. Hey, so I don't know if you know this, but historically, churches are kind of more known for what they are against rather than what they are for. So if, you, and if you're new to the faith, that may not be a, a surprise to you, but if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you'll know that we, we've been known as the, like, the don't drink people, the don't smoke people, the don't have sex before marriage people, the don't cut your grass on Sunday people, the don't, well, you fill in the blank, people. And it's not necessarily that some of those things are bad, it's just our reputation, it's just what we are known for. Disagree with someone, disagree with something, Leave the church, no, no big deal, move on, you know, start a new one. Disagree on something major, say like the color of the carpet or the type of music a church should have or its government structure. Hey, grab some friends, form a 501c3 and start a new church and come up with a really creative name like Second Presbyterian Church. Sorry, I spent a lot of time in the PCA, so I feel like I can get away with that. We're just really uncreative when it comes to church names, but John broke that mold, New City Fellowship, I love it, thank you. So I grew up in the church, and I've always had this deep love and affinity for the local church. I've seen the church respond in such new and creative and innovative ways to pain, to lostness, to brokenness. I've seen the church respond to homelessness and provide crisis housing solutions for homeless children and families. I've seen the church leverage its resources to purchase apartment buildings and to be used as affordable housing. I've seen the church care for refugees, for orphans, and for widows. I've seen the church unite in times of great loss and tragedy to provide hope, help, and healing. I have seen the church at its best, but I also think through my story, I've seen the church at its worst. But no matter what you could leverage at me about the local church, I stand before you here this morning as someone who is deeply convicted that the local church, the church of Jesus Christ, God's people, are the hope of the world. And if they're the hope of the world, they're the hope of South Florida. And if they're the hope of South Florida, they're the hope of Broward County, and you see where I'm going with this. If they're the hope of Broward County, they're the hope of Hollywood and Hollandale. God's people, the local church, is the hope of the world. It would only be appropriate then as part of my story as someone who grew up in the church that one of my first jobs when I was 16 was working at Lifeway Christian Bookstores. And if you're not familiar with Lifeway Christian Bookstores, I will not hold that against you. Uh, think of it as a sort of brick-and-mortar Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble or Cracker Barrel store, just with a lot of Christian stuff. Um, it was a really fascinating job because what would happen is people would come in with the oddest requests. 
So I remember vividly being behind the counter. I remember just 16, high school job, and you would have a mom come in, leaving her children outside the door, would come to the counter and say, hey, excuse me, before I bring my children in, can you please turn off Veggie Tales in the kids' section? We don't let our kids watch that. I'm going, it's, your kids are outside. You're worried about Veggie Tales. Okay, that's cool. Um, or I'd have uh, uh, other people come in and say, hey, uh, we don't let our family listen to Christian rap music. That's got to come off before we come into the store. You're like, okay, sure, because, you know, you're 16, you really need that $7 an hour. You're, you're going to do it. Like, you just have to do it. But I remember getting in my car time and time and time again, sitting after my shift, and this has always bothered me, saying, how in the world have we, how in the world has God's people gotten to a place where we can't even agree on cute little animated cucumbers singing Jesus Loves Me to children? How are we going to bring hope and healing for addicts and orphans and widows? How are we truly going to be the hope of the world if we cannot agree on veggie tales? And it used to just really bother me. John White, the former president of the campus ministry InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, once said, considering all the divisions that have plagued Christendom, the church, for 2,000 years, it's amazing that God has continued to use them to extend his kingdom on earth. Spend a week working at Lifeway and you'll understand the power of that statement. But let's make it a little more plain and maybe a little more close to home. Turn on Fox News or CNN or scroll through your social media feed and it won't take you just but a second to realize how divided and disunited and angry God's people are and how they're all over the place on so many issues. But this morning here in John 17, we find some of the last words of Jesus just 24 hours before his death. And we find him praying for you and I and pleading for our unity. If you've ever been around someone who is dying or is close to dying or on their deathbed, you'll find that they don't really appreciate small talk. They're not talking with you about, hey, I love that shirt, or hey, nice shoes, or hey, I really want to buy this new car. No, 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 they're talking to you about the things that deeply, deeply matter to them, about the things that are close to their heart, what they want to be remembered by, what they want to impart to you before they leave this earth. They're talking with you about their legacy. And that's exactly where we find Jesus this morning. And it's exactly why I think James Montgomery Boyce said, this is hallowed ground because this is Jesus directly talking to us about what he so desires for you and I. Notice in verse 20 at this point Jesus very directly begins to pray for you and I and for anyone who professes to be a Christian. One translation puts it, I no longer just pray for my disciples, the people in the room with me, I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. So from this point through the end of our passage, Jesus is very clearly communicating what he desires most, what he wants for you and I in this room this morning if we call ourselves Christians, if we profess faith in him. And I want you to see what's happening here. We're getting a glimpse into the very heart of God. We're getting a glimpse into what he desires most for you and I. And if you're anything like me, I want to know what the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe most desires for me and for us if we're to call ourselves Christians. 
And I've got to be honest, I've always pictured Jesus in this passage kind of gently grabbing my hand or putting his, his hands on my face and just gently drawing me in and saying something like this, saying, child, listen to me. Listen, I'm about to die, and I want you to remember these words from verse 20, 21. I want you to be one just as me and my father are one. Later on in verse 23, I want you and I want them to be in complete unity. So what, our first point, what is unity? Unity, we're going to see, is rooted in love. It's rooted at the very core of the gospel, the essential message of Jesus Christ. It's a radical open-handedness towards other Christians. It's a peculiar group of countercultural people coming together to share life, to share resources, to share problems, to share possessions, banding together for mission banding together for God's mission on earth. And you know, just sidebar, you know what that's what the church is. The local church is a demonstration community to the watching world, previewing for Hollandale and Hollywood, for Broward County, what the church, what God's kingdom looks like if it were to be lived out in zip codes. That's what the church is. You see, the early church is described in the New Testament book of Acts. Well, it's spread like wildfire. Why? Because of the aroma of their unity, because of the aroma of the love that they had for one another. You see, when you encountered a group of New Testament early Christians, it didn't matter where you came from, it didn't matter what your story was, it didn't matter how you got connected, it didn't matter what you had done wrong in your past, it doesn't matter what you do right. All that mattered is you were a Christian, you wanted to follow this guy named Jesus Christ, and that is all that mattered. They brought you in and you were part of this thing called the church. Hungry? Here, here's something to eat. Naked? Here, take my clothes. Thirsty? Here, get some water. Orphaned? Widowed? Here, come belong. Have a new family with us. In debt? Here, take my money. It's not mine anyway. It all belongs to the Lord. This is how they operated. This is how they thought. And what does the scriptures tell us? That the Lord added to their number daily because of the aroma of their unity, because of the aroma of the love that they had for one another. Unity is uncommon love. I know you instantly picked up on this when John introduced me, but my name, uh, Edwin Patrick Copeland, or Eddie Patrick Copeland, is actually half Greek. Uh, no, seriously, I was, uh, I was born in Athens, Greece. My mom is Greek, and I spent the first part of my, my life in Greece, and let's just get this out of the way real fast. Uh, all the stereotypes for my big fat Greek wedding, the movie, are 100% accurate. If anything ails you this morning, I have Windex in my car. See me afterwards. We'll squirt it, and we'll, we'll be good to go. No, but uh, in my house, it was actually rubbing alcohol. Uh, rubbing alcohol cures everything from a knee ache to a tummy ache to an ear infection. My mom is convinced that rubbing alcohol cures everything. But there's something really interesting about Greeks. You see, when a Greek meets another Greek, it's like meeting a long-lost friend. When you meet another Greek, you share this instant bond with them. I was in New York not, not too long ago, and I heard these Greeks walking down the street, and I just did an about face and kind of quickly caught up in a creepy way, like eavesdropping, and just figuring out a way to like butt into this conversation in Greek. And when I did, it was like we were instant friends. All of a sudden, the room got a little louder that we were in, and we began to talk about Greece, about which part we're from, how long we've been in America, and the, and the in inevitable question that always gets just a little awkward for me, uh, so what Orthodox church do you attend, which always leads to some really interesting conversation. But anyway, 
When you meet another Greek, you share this instant camaraderie. You share this shared commonality, this connection, this affinity, all before you even ask or know the other person's name. It doesn't matter. You're Greek. That's all that counts. You see, when I meet another Greek, whether they're a Republican or a Democrat, well, that doesn't cross my mind. Our differences don't cross my mind. What they do for a living, how much money they have, what part of town they're from, that just doesn't matter. All that matters in that moment when I meet them is they're Greek. There's a commonality, there's a kinship, there's a connection. And catch this, our identity as Greeks supersedes everything else in that moment. The New Testament book of Ephesians says this about you and I as Christians. It says that you and I, Christians, were dead to our trespasses of sin, but have been made alive in Jesus Christ. You and I were dead to our trespasses of sin, but have been made alive in Jesus Christ. And listen to this. If you're in the room this morning, and if you identify as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you were dead and now you're alive. You were dead, and now you're alive. As a follower of Jesus Christ, your identity has changed. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer under the weight of its guilt and judgment. You're a son, and you're a daughter of the king. And that shared experience that shared identity, that shared experience of being a people who have moved from death into new life is what unites us period. The uncommon, undeserved love that you and I have experienced in Jesus moving from death into new life pushes aside everything else. All of a sudden, race and class and ethnicity and position and vocation and tradition and politics and money and fill in the blank, all of the things that could be used to divide us get pushed aside and replaced by the radical love of the cross. They get pushed aside and they get replaced by a new identity that we have been granted in Jesus as sons and daughters of the King. Christian unity is uncommon love that is rooted in a new identity and a shared experience of a people who have moved from death into new life. And that's our first point. Now our second. But why is unity so important? Why would this literally be some of the last things Jesus prays for just 24 hours before his death? And here's the thing, and let's be sure to catch this, church. Unless the world sees a radical, countercultural, open-handed, loving community, a type of people that the watching world doesn't have a category for, I believe what Jesus is saying here in John 17, is they're not going to believe in me, they're not going to believe in the things that I've taught. Our faith, the claims of Christianity, are rooted in uncommon, radical love and unity of Christian community. And our faith, what we believe if we call ourselves Christians, is filled with some crazy claims. Here's just three real fast. Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus died for you and died. Jesus rose again on the third day. Just three real quick of some crazy claims that we believe. And what Jesus is saying, these foundations of our faith, what he's saying here is people are not going to believe in these claims unless they see what we believe is backed up by a peculiar people who are radically generous and uncommonly loving with one another. 
Let me be clear. Yes, we need to evangelize. Yes, we need to share the gospel. Yes, we need to go on mission trips, plant churches, and work to expand God's kingdom. But none of those things are going to make a lasting impact unless they're backed by a radical community, and a radical community of unity and of people who are uncommonly loving, uncommonly gracious, uncommonly forgiving with one another. People who share their resources and share their burdens and begin to act like that early New Testament church. We can talk, we can share our faith, we can do service projects until the cows come home. We can do that stuff all day long. But I think what Jesus is saying here is that people aren't going to hear us unless it's backed up by an uncommon love and an uncommon unity, a unity that's rooted in love. Author and pastor Tim Keller, when talking about unity, says this about our passage this morning. He says, there's a positive and a negative to the unity that John 17 speaks of. First, the negative. This is his words. The honor of Jesus Christ's name is bound up in the quality of Christian community. The honor of Jesus Christ's name is bound up, is in direct correlation with the quality of Christian community. Let the implications of that just sink in for a moment, because I think Keller is 100% right. Another commentator on this passage asked this question. He asked, do you know any churches that have gossip, insensitivity, negative criticism, jealousy, coldness, cruelness, greed, selfishness, backbiting, an unforgiving spirit, unloving, and general failure to fully welcome people who are different? Perhaps people of other races, classes, or socioeconomic statuses? He asked, do you know any churches like that? Do you know any Christians like that? If we're honest, of course we do. We all know churches and Christians like that. And let's just get really honest for a second. I'm one of them. You're one of them. Time and time and time again. And this is not to put shame or guilt on anyone because we're going to see in our next point that God's going to come in with a radical solution. But in those moments when we are participating in activity like that, we're actually making the name of Jesus Christ ugly to the watching world. You see, when people darken the doors of a church for the first time or join one of our city groups or our service projects, and they begin to open up about their pain, they begin to share their life, what they're expecting is something radically different than what they've experienced out in the world. They're expecting something different. You see, we aren't in just those moments gossiping or backbiting or participating in insensitivity and jealousy. We're damaging the witness of Jesus Christ. In my job, I get to look at a lot of research, and the last Barna study that we had commissioned here in Broward County shows, and you heard some of it in the video, shows that this community would only identify as 3% evangelical Christians. And I think that we, the church, the local church, has to look under the hood and ask some serious questions about why that is. We can't just continue to, to blame culture and to blame the media and blah, blah, blah. We have to actually do some hard work of looking inside and saying, what is the work that we need to do as a church to begin to shift that number? But that's the negative. Now the positive. It has to be possible to have this type of unity. It's got to be possible to experience this type of uncommon love and generosity with one another, or else Jesus wouldn't be saying it. It's got to be possible in the gospel, in the message of Jesus Christ, to obtain this type of unity. If Jesus is calling you and I to this type of radical, uncommon love and unity, it 
has to be possible. He's not just going to give us something and say good luck with that. So lastly, and we're going to spend the majority of our time here, how do we get it? How do we experience unity? How does it come to us? We've seen what unity is. We've looked at why it's important. So now, how do we get it? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, says, it's natural for human beings, when they meet each other, to immediately begin to size each other up and compare themselves to one another. He says, it's natural. You and I are constantly sizing people up and making sure that the other people that we encounter are not a threat to our self-worth. We compare each other on looks. We compare each other on material possessions, on opinions, on political affiliations, on vocational choices, on education, on money, you name it. We're constantly comparing ourselves. We're constantly sizing up, how do I compare to you? And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why do we do that? What's that about? What's at the root of that? You see, I believe deep down, you and I, in our hearts, we're constantly trying to justify ourselves. What I mean by that is we're trying to make ourselves feel worthy, to feel valued, to feel important, to try to position ourselves. And I think that is one of the core reasons why there's so much disunity and anger in the church. I think that's one of the core reasons God's people are so fragmented and angry, because deep down, our relationships are broken. But beyond that, our identities are fundamentally broken. And I think Jesus knew this. I think he knew that this was the tendencies of our hearts, and that's why we find him here this morning, just hours away from his death, pleading for you and I, praying for you and I on our behalf, and praying for unity. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us in our relational brokenness. He doesn't leave us with fragmented identities. He provides a solution, a solution that transforms you and I and enables us to have this radical open-handedness, this radical love and uncommon unity in relationship with one another. And that takes us to the last sentence of verse 23. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved Unity is rooted in love. Christian unity is rooted in the fact that you and I have moved from death into new life together. We have a shared experience. And let's be sure to catch this last point because it takes us into the very heart of the gospel. The unity that we're talking about this morning is rooted in the fact that Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, loves you and I more than we could ever dare dream or imagine. Let that sit in. This unity is possible right now because if you are in Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, here is what unites us. That God in this moment, right now, loves you and I as much as he loves his son. He calls you son. He calls you daughter. And he'll do anything for his son. And he'll do anything for his daughter. This reality changes everything. This reality is how we experience unity in the church. But here's the question. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? Because I daily live like I don't believe that. We daily live like we don't believe that. You know, if you're sitting in these chairs right now and you're someone who's put their faith and trust in Jesus, that he, Jesus, right now from heaven is looking down at you and he's beaming with joy. He can't believe that you are his. You're his son. You're his daughter. 
I'm going to keep saying that until it just gets into our heads that that is how much we are loved. And that is the root of our unity. And here's the thing. He's not interested in what we've done right. He's not interested in what we've done wrong. He's simply interested in loving you and I and rejoicing in the fact that we are his and that we belong to him. If you've repented of your sin, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you've moved from death into new life. He's given you a new name. He's given you a new identity as a son and as a daughter of the king. And John says what? Luke says what? That Jesus knows the name of his children. He hears their voice and he leads them out. I have three kids ages four, two, and seven months. And I got to tell you, it is a party at my house. I changed a lot of diapers. I'm chasing kids. I'm constantly saying no and put that back, I feel like. Um, but here's the thing. When I get home from work, my kids kind of just have this sixth sense that my car's in the driveway and they're in the window or they're at the door and I can already hear them going, Daddy, 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 Daddy's home, Daddy's home. And they're like jumping up and down. And when I get home, I open the door, they come running, I get the biggest hugs in the world. And when I get down on a knee and I put my hands around them, they have no idea how much I love them in that moment. They have no idea what I see in them, what I want for them, how happy I am to be home with them. No matter if they were terrorists that day with their mom, and they are all the time. But just in this quick moment, that doesn't matter. Daddy's home, and Daddy loves them so much. And friends... That's Jesus to us each and every day. It doesn't matter. If we're in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what we've done right or wrong. He has forgiven us and he sees Jesus. No matter what our traditions come from, no matter what the differences in our churches, that is what he sees. He says, I have, you have no idea, child, how much I love you, how much I care for you, all that I see in you. Would you rest in me? Would you know all that I see in you? Would you know that I'm enough? Would you rest in this name? Would you rest in this new identity that I have given you? Jesus gave up everything to have you. He gave up all the freedoms of heaven. He experienced um, this life on earth. And he lived a life that we were meant to live. And he died a death that we deserved to die. All that so we could be his all because he loves us. And friends, listen, this is what makes unity possible. You and I belong to Jesus. Your friend who's sitting next to you, who may have voted for Donald Trump and may watch Fox News, if they're in Jesus Christ, they belong to him. Your friend that's sitting on the other side of you that voted for Hillary Clinton and may watch like something like MSNBC or CNN, well, you guessed it. If they are in Jesus, they belong to him. You see, it's not about what you do. It's not about what you don't do. It's not about what you know or what you don't know or what, what political affiliation you may have, about what news network you watch, or about what opinions you have. It's not about the fact that this church may baptize by sprinkling and others may dunk someone in the pool or go to the beach. It's not about this church's view of the end times and that church's view of the end times or this church's view of church government and that church's view of church government. Here's what it's about. It's about whose you are and to whom you belong. If you're a Christian, you belong to Jesus. And that reality changes everything. Our identities change everything. 
We can push aside so many differences because if you're in the church, if you're a Christian, you've moved from death into new life. We have that shared experience together. Why do I continue to argue with my brothers and sisters on some other sides of some issues? Because ultimately in eternity, I don't think that's going to matter. I don't think we're going to get to heaven and Jesus go, hey, what's your view on baptism? I think we're going to move from death into new life together. We're going to sit at the feet of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords together. We're going to spend eternity together. Why not kick that party off now? If you're a Christian, if you're someone who's put their faith and trust in Christ, you belong to him, then that reality changes everything. But I got to ask again, do I believe that? Do we believe that? Do I believe that when I get on social media and see something I really want to argue with? Do I believe that when I interact with a church or a pastor that has some differences than me or what I feel like some of my settled beliefs are? I have to reorient myself time and time and time again to the fact that this brother, this sister has moved from death into new life. We have that shared experience together. Keller says this, and it's really interesting. He says, to the degree that you and I believe in the reality that the cross changes everything, to the degree that you and I believe and daily repent and reorient our hearts and confess our unbelief of our hearts and minds to the reality that Jesus changes everything, our shared identity changes everything, to the degree that you and I believe that, will we have the ability and the capacity of loving other people, especially those who differ than us, and disagree with us. And I think he's absolutely right. Living in light of God's immense love for you and I is what makes our unity possible. It's also what fuels the efforts of mission. As you talk about mission, this is what fuels it. It's what fuels the efforts of everything you watched in that video. It's what fuels the efforts of Church United. You see, none of that's possible without living in light of Jesus. There's, like I said, there's over 150 pastors and churches that are a part of Church United, and there are people in the room who I just disagree with on some stuff. There are some who I really disagree with theologically. Nothing crazy, but you know what? I'm not going to argue with them anymore. I'm not going to argue on some other sides of the issues because we have this shared commonality. We have this shared experience together, but most importantly, we have this shared mission together. We're meant to be God's demonstration community to the watching world. But ultimately, I believe I'm going to see these brothers and sisters in heaven if they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's what fuels the efforts of mission. It's what fuels the efforts of Church United. It's what fuels the efforts of our unified evangelistic expression, our education work, our mercy and justice initiatives, our faith and work initiatives. Everything that you heard in that video, everything you hear and read about mission in the church is fueled by an uncommon love and unity with one another. It's fueled by the aroma of something really peculiar that's happening here in South Florida. It's fueled by something that transforms us and it enables us to be agents of kingdom transformation. It's fueled by the cross. It's fueled by that shared identity. It's fueled by that radical love that we've experienced in Jesus Christ. You see, the more that we live in light of our identities as a people who have passed from death into new life, the more we dig into this fact, the more that we let our minds ponder this gospel reality that you and I are sons and daughters of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the more that we are freed to love other people, especially those who are different than us. Especially those who are different than us. You see, living in light of this shared identity as sons and daughters of the King 
also does another thing. It gives us the ability and the freedom to rest. It gives us the freedom and ability to be wrong, to repent of certain things time and time and time again. It gives us the freedom to share our possessions, to give away power, to return authority, to make it about other people, to bear one another's burdens and love, and to do and to do the things that the early New Testament church did, and then it spread like wildfire. Because if our identity is in Christ, we have nothing to fear, and it's all the Lord's anyway. You see, resting in our shared experience as a people who have moved from death into new life, resting and finding our life and our identity as sons and daughters of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords fuels radical love, it fuels uncommon generosity, and a radical open-handedness towards others. You see, now, let's park here for a second, now that church plant down the street moves from a threat to a celebration. Now the church down the street that may differ on just a few things becomes a partner in kingdom ministry. See, now churches in our region with this mindset can begin to work with one another, begin to become open-handed with one another to say, hey, if we're only at 3% evangelical Christians in this region, we got to work together to change that. It moves from a, well, that would be nice to work with one another to how do we make that happen? What do we need to do? What do I need to give up? What do I need to repent of to have that shared experience and that partnership together? What do we need to repent of? Where have we been wrong? Where have I wronged you? Where have you wronged me? How can we together in the cross, in our shared identity, repent and be reconciled in Jesus for the sake of his mission here on earth? And here's the thing, friends. This type of uncommon love and unity, I believe, is slowly happening in and through the efforts of Church United and in and through the Church of South Florida. Because let me be really clear, Church United is not this other nonprofit. It is a movement of pastors, of the church, for the church, and by the church. I'm its only employee, and my whole job is just to keep churches together. To say, hey, you wronged him, he wronged you, come on, let's, let's talk about that. This is a movement of God's people. This is a movement of the church coming together to be a demonstration community. And here's what I mean by it's slowly happening. I'm just giving you a few examples. Every November, we come together under the Church Church United banner for this ministry called Love South Florida. It's a collective outreach that these churches opt in to do to say, hey, in the month of November, we're going to do outreach together under the Love South Florida banner. And we kicked this off two years ago. We said we're going to pray, we're going to give, and we're going to serve. We're going to pray for our friends, our cities, our coworkers, and our neighborhoods. We're going to call each church to give $39 a person and let the church decide where they want that money to go to to bless other ministries and nonprofits. Then we're going to serve at least three hours in the month of November collectively in our churches. So we thought, hey, you know what? Maybe that's a good idea. It may work. It may not. We'll do an opt-in thing. So the first year in a pilot program, we raised $150,000. We brought 20,000 volunteer hours, and we collected 50,000 pounds of food. And that was just our first year. Last year, last November, we raised $337,000. We logged over 40,000 volunteer hours and gave away over 100,000 pounds of food in Jesus' name because churches began to, those walls came down and we sang that spirit broke out. We think that we're just getting started with that. But more recently in Parkland, when we had that terrible shooting at Parkland, I was on the phone with the school board member not even hours after that, and I met her at her office, and I was there till 1 a.m. because she was looking at me saying, how can we rally the church to do something in Parkland? And not even 12 hours after that shooting, we held the first prayer vigil with 12 pastors from the Parkland area. The governor came, Debbie Wasserman Schultz came, a thousand people came, and they prayed to bring hope and healing in Jesus' name. And something special happened in that prayer vigil. 
We had 12 prominent, larger pastors on stage. And, when, and we didn't even script this. When every pastor got on stage, they didn't say, hey, I'm John Homus, or hey, I'm Doug Souter from Calvary. They simply just got up and prayed and asked that the Lord would bring hope and healing in the midst of this tragedy. Because in those moments, it's not about the church's name or brand or identity. It's that we, this community, we, the church, have experienced pain, and we are here to bring hope and healing in Jesus' name. And oh, by the way, we raised over $150,000 for the parents and the students of Parkland within 24 hours of that. A little over a year ago, there was another shooting at the Fort Lauderdale airport. And what no one knows, we didn't get any press for this, and we did this intentionally. Within 24 hours after the Fort Lauderdale airport shooting, I wrote one email to 24 churches at that time. And within 24 hours, we had raised double of what we needed to cover all the medical expenses for all 54 people who were treated as a result of that shooting. And here's what happened. <coughs> I got a call from one of the higher-ups at Broward General a few weeks later, and he was kind of adversarial with me on the phone, and I, I didn't get it. I felt like, had we offended you? Like, we just paid all these medical bills. Like, what's the deal? Um, and, and I quickly kind of surmised that he was like, what's the agenda? Why did you do this? And I simply said, hey, listen, the churches of Broward County are coming together in Jesus' name, and we want to say, hey, we want to do something tangible to display the love and hope of Jesus. That's all. We have no agenda. We don't need any press. We just want to pay these bills quietly. And he was so moved by that that a week later he called me again and he said, would you write me a letter that I could put on Broward General's letterhead explaining what you talked to me on the phone about? And he sent that letter out on Broward General's letterhead to all 54 people who were treated as a result of that airport shooting. That is the aroma of love. That is the aroma of unity. And I'm using some big examples, but I could go on and on about how this is starting to take root grassroots, at a grassroots level with pastors and with leaders in our region. Just this last week, I had a church find out that a church planter didn't have dental insurance. And he was suffering with some major tooth pain. And they said, hey, tell him whatever he needs, go to the dentist, send us the bill. Another church in another area of town got his car stolen. And this pastor was going through a really difficult time with his family. They didn't have the funds to go replace this car, and it wasn't covered under his insurance. So another pastor, I didn't even know about it, I just heard out about this. Some pastors in his regions got together and said, hey, we're going to raise some money, and we're going to buy him a car. And they just bought him a car, just surprised him. And it wasn't in the name of Calvary Chapel, or it wasn't in the name of Rio Vista Community Church, or New City Fellowship. It was just under the banner of Church United, saying, hey, we're God's people, and we want to care with and for one another. That type of unity is only possible if we put those walls down and we do ask for the Spirit to break out and remind us of our shared commonality as a people who have moved from death into new life together. And you know what happens as we slowly live in light of that? We become a people. South Florida becomes a place that is known for uncommon love and radical open-handedness and radical generosity with other people. As the church continues to unite together for mission, as people in the pews begin to come together and, and unite for mission and begin to look at others in light of all that we've talked about this morning, the narrative of South Florida begins to change. We begin to change. We become better friends, better neighbors, better employees, and better citizens. Why? Because Jesus changes because Jesus loves you and I in this moment, if we are in him, more than you could ever dare dream or imagine. Because if you're sitting here this morning, you are a son and daughter of the king. And that love, that unity, that grace makes 
mission possible. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you as a people who struggle with this. I come before you as someone who struggles with this. Father, I pray that you would reorient my heart, our hearts and our minds towards the fact that the gospel does really change everything. That we're your sons and that we're your daughters and you would do anything for us, that you love us so much, Father. Would that shape how we interact with others? Would that shape how we view other churches and other Christians and other people who are different than us? God, would you make us sticky, we pray. Would you make us a people who are known for uncommon love and unity with one another? Lord, we know that the Holy Spirit is capable of doing that in our hearts and our minds. Would you do it, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's thank Eddie. Uh, at New City Fellowship, we're God's blended family. And that's not really even about us. The purpose isn't just to be multicultural or multilingual or, or different ethnicities just unto that end. The reason that we are God's blended family is because God's radical love through Jesus Christ has brought us into his family. And as we come together, all of us are pointing together to someone much greater than any one of us. That's Jesus. As we come together united, it shows people that we are willing to point to someone greater than any individual, any people group, any language group, Jesus Christ the King. And as that gets into a church and as that gets into a region, it becomes a radical, uh, a radical shift. We've already started to see this. And in fact, this church has been helped to be planted by other churches who said, we don't care about our name. We just care about you guys getting started as a church because of Jesus. In fact, just down the street, Hollywood, uh, Calvary Chapel Hollywood hosted a church service in the park about a year and a half ago. And they called me and they said, New City, we want you guys to come to do the church service. We will do all the work, but we'll tell everyone that it's your church that's hosting it. Your worship team can come out, you can preach, but we'll do all the legwork and we'll just say New City Fellowship Church is hosting a church service. And my jaw dropped. And that's the very kind of thing we're called into. And my hope is as a church is as we grow, we can do that for other churches. Yeah. Amen? Why don't you stand and we'll sing together.